Well, welcome everybody. Go ahead and take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of James. If you're watching online right now, let me encourage you to do likewise as we are beginning a brand new series here uh, through the book of James. Really excited about this. Excited to uh, hear from our elders as all of us have a task over the next few weeks to study this book. So let's, let's get started. I, I'm just going to make it through one verse today, okay? So <laughs> that's my pace. And what I really want to do is just introduce this book. So like I said, open it up, uh, turn to the book of James, turn back all, uh, turn past all of Paul's epistles and the book of Hebrews. If you get to the book of Revelation, you've gone too far. Somewhere in between those is this little book of James. And just so you know, I've committed personally to read through this book uh, every day until the end of August. So I'm, it's a short book. It takes, if you, you know, on average, it takes about 15 minutes to read it all the way through. And so I've been committing to doing that. And we as elders have been reading through it together as well, trying to get ready to uh, work through this book. And, uh, you know, I would encourage you to do likewise, find some way to to read through the, the book regularly and join with us as we're studying together. You know, like I said, I've been reading it every day for the last week or so, and it is a short book, but I'll just tell you, this book packs a wallop, okay? It, it kind of wears you out. And, you know, and, and I've been thinking about it as I've read this week and contrasting it with the book of Romans, which we've been studying for about a year. You know, Romans is very intellectually challenging. Romans is very intellectually satisfying. Romans is about getting your mind right about the gospel, about salvation, about justification, about sanctification. Not exclusively, but primarily, that's what Romans is about. James is different. James is a punch to the gut, okay? James is, you know, you start reading James and it's like James is saying to you, you believe this about Jesus? Good. Start acting like it. Start living out your faith in real ways. Get your tongue under control. Ouch. That hurts. I'm an extrovert. Quit showing favoritism, says James. Quit whining about your suffering. Stop being a hearer of the word only. Start doing it. Stop being wasteful and self-indulgent with your finances. And, and as you read this book, you know, every day you start to see your own bad habits and your sin patterns emerge. And if, if you don't want that, I'll just tell you frankly, don't read this book, okay? If you don't want to be challenged, you know, if you want to just be comfortable and safe in your little pseudo-Christian world, don't read the book of James. And I might add to that, if you want your ears tickled, this is probably not the church for you either. And these elders that are going to be preaching in the next few weeks are probably not the elders that you want leading your life. But if you want to be challenged... If you want to change and experience God's goodness and God's pleasure in a deep... Do you want that? I want that. If you want to live a life that's meaningful and impactful in this world where we've been commissioned as ambassadors for Christ, then let me encourage you. Can I encourage you to do something right now? Stick around for the next few weeks. Stick around. 
and let God's word transform you over the next eight weeks or so as we journey through the book of James together. Here's what I want to do today. I just want to introduce this book. I've entitled this message today, Introducing Jesus's Little Brother. And James, the author of this book, is Jesus's little brother. Let me, let me ask this question. How many of you have a little brother out there? Anybody? All right, I'm in that camp. I've got a little brother. How many of you have an older brother? Anybody in this room? Okay, I don't have an older brother. Another question here. Those of you who have an older brother, there was a lot, actually, about half of you. How many of you have an older brother that was virgin born without a sin nature? Anyone? How many of you have an older brother who is God incarnated in the flesh? Honestly, I would love to hear my little brother answer that question. If I asked him that question, he would say no so fast. It would make your head spin. He knows all about my dirty little secrets as a kid. Well, James, who wrote this book, um, his older brother was Jesus. (laughs) What do you think about that? Talk about uh, big shoes to fill. And just so you know, James, the author of this book, He wasn't always as keen on following Jesus as he was when he wrote this book. I'll show you some of that in the Gospels, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But let me me just start here, okay? I want to answer three basic questions for you today, and then we'll be done. And then we'll worship some more, okay? Three questions. Who, when, why? Who, when, why? First, the who. Who wrote the book of James? The answer is this. The Apostle James, Jesus' younger half-brother. The Apostle James, Jesus' younger half-brother. The very first uh, verse in the book clearly identifies James as the author of this book. It goes like this, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, when you talk New Testament, it can become confusing Become confusing whenever you use the names James, John, or Mary. Because you have to specify which John are you talking about, which Mary are you talking about, which James are you talking about. So, you know, when we're talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, we'll say Mary, the mother of Jesus, to differentiate her from Mary Magdalene or one of the other Marys in the New Testament. When we're talking about John the Baptist, I'll say John the Baptist to differentiate him from John the Apostle or, you know, John the Apostle is also John the son of Zebedee. You've got to do the same thing when you mention James because there are two prominent people in the New Testament that are called James. There's actually more than two, but two prominent people. And the reason that name, the name was really popular in the first century. The reason for that is because we say James, but in the Hebrew world, they, the name is Jacob or Yaakov. And so, you know, Jesus, as a kid, would have called his brother Jacob or Yaakov, not, not James. That's how we anglicize it for our English ears. Um, and, and you can imagine in the first century world, of course, moms and dads want to call their children Jacob, right? Because Jacob was the the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. His name was changed later in life to Israel. So there's a lot of people named James in the New Testament, in that first century world, two prominent people named James. One of them is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. Is that who we're talking about here? Is that who wrote this book? If you remember that, James was part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. 
And Jesus, when he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he had that inner circle with him. So Peter, James, and John were there, as well as Moses and Elijah. He was privy to that special experience in the life of our Lord. He saw Jesus' body transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. But that James died really early in the history of the church. He died in Acts 12. He was beheaded by King Agrippa. So he probably is not the author of this book. I don't think he is the author of this book. There's another James. The James that I believe and most reputable scholars agree, this was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, who actually becomes a major, major figure in the book of Acts. He led the church in Jerusalem after Paul and the other apostles uh, proliferated around the Roman Empire. He's spoken of in Acts 12, Acts 15, Acts 21. He gets into a little bit of an argument with Paul in Acts 15. So let me tell you a few things about this James, James the author here, the half-brother of Jesus. He was Jesus' half-brother, and I want to define that term for you. You might say, well, what does that mean, half-brother? Well, Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus was born, okay? And I know there's this myth that circulates in some churches in some places that's called the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Uh, let me just bust that myth right now, okay? That is not the case. The Bible speaks clearly about other children that Mary and Joseph had, other siblings of Jesus. Their names were James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, or Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, Matthew and Mark also reference to Jesus' sisters. So Jesus had brothers, Jesus had sisters, but here's the difference between them. Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus, whereas he was the biological father of James and Jude and the other brothers and sisters. Everybody with me? And that's an important distinction. Jesus was virgin born, unlike any other sibling in the world. And unlike his own siblings. And so maybe, you know, maybe half-brother isn't the right term, but I'm trying to keep that distinction. You know, it's not like Joseph was Jesus' stepdad or something like that. No, he was his adoptive father. And Jesus, I'm trying to emphasize too here that Jesus was raised in a real family. You know, Jesus, let me say it this way. Jesus shared a bathroom with James. James knew about his brother. And, and they probably shared a bedroom together, too. They wouldn't have called Jesus their half-brother. They would have called him brother. But he, Jesus, was categorically different than them. He was virgin-born. Secondly, this James, you need to know this, too. I alluded to this already. James didn't always believe that Jesus was the Messiah even though he had this, this special relationship with him and actually saw him grow up in a setting without even manifesting a, his sin nature, any kind of sin nature. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, this is a key verse. I think this is on the screen. Yes, good. Jesus' popularity was growing. This is early in his ministry, and it was soaring, really, in Galilee. And as this was happening... Uh, Mark writes, when his family heard it, all the things that Jesus was teaching, all that he was doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. 
A few verses later, Mark says that Jesus' mother and brothers were calling to him, trying to get his attention, maybe trying to get him out of the crowd. And Jesus, pointing to this crowd, says, here are my mother and brothers. That probably hurt his mama and his brothers. You know, like the nuclear family all of a sudden gets blown up and all of these random strangers, Jesus is calling them my mother and my brothers. You know, I think Mary struggled with this too. Mary had to learn, just like all of us, you know, that she couldn't cling to Jesus like a normal son could cling, like normal mom could cling to her son. Jesus was more to Mary than just her son. Jesus was her savior. And Jesus' brothers had to learn that too. They had to learn that too. And the, and the question lingers, you know, and I have this question. Okay, James, you know, you, you see, read about Jesus' brothers in the Gospels. When did James become this, this fired up Christian that wrote this book of the Bible? When did that happen? When did, when did James ultimately embrace Jesus as his Messiah? Can I tell you the answer to that? I don't know. I don't know. There's not a clear picture there in the Bible, but there's some clues that answer that. I think it was probably after Jesus's resurrection. Because after Jesus's resurrection, you know, it's pretty hard to argue with somebody that he's not the Messiah when he's raised from the dead, right? I mean, that's pretty definitive evidence. Wow, you're not just my big brother. You're something more than that. I can imagine even a scenario. Remember Jesus when he was crucified? Who was with Jesus? Who stood by Jesus? Just a few people. Mary, his mother, was there. There were a few faithful women. There were, there were way more women than there were men standing by Jesus when he was crucified. And then there was John the Apostle. There's no mention of James, his brother. There's no mention of any other member of his family other than Mary. And probably James was embarrassed by the crucifixion of his brother. I mean, here's, I mean crucifixion was humiliating for him and for his family. So James was probably embarrassed that his insurrectionist brother here, Jesus, was being crucified and bringing shame upon the family. How, how did that change? Well, I think it probably changed at this point. Paul writes about this and gives us a clue in 1 Corinthians 15. You can read this on the screen. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. This is after his resurrection. Make a note. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his brother. Not, not one of the twelve, that James, but his brother James. And then to all the apostles. So how did James become a believer? I think Jesus showed up, raised from the dead, and said, hey, bro, what's going on? James was like, wait a second, I got you wrong. You're more than what I thought. Now, all of a sudden, you can watch this in the book of Acts, James becomes this spirit-empowered leader of the church, actually leading the church in Jerusalem and, and you know, preaching even, not Jesus, his big brother, but Jesus, his Messiah, Jesus, his Lord and Savior. And actually, I, th I think that's important, too, that Jesus showed up to James, 
because that defends his apostleship as a writer of Scripture. Paul talks about this in Galatians and other places where the apostles, those people that were sanctioned as the, the gospel authenticators and the Scripture writers were those that saw Jesus' resurrected body, saw him in his resurrected state. James saw that. And James's faith in Christ after the fact is clarified even further in verse 1 of his book. Look again at James 1, 1. Look at how he introduces himself. You know, let's just be frank. If I was, if I was Jesus's kid brother, I'd tell you about that. I would introduce myself that way. I'd be like, hey, hey, listen to me. I'm Jesus's kid brother. Jesus has gone back to heaven. He's got important stuff to do. He left me in charge. All right. So you got to listen to me. Is that how James introduces himself? Is that what he tells the church? No, look how he introduces himself. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't even mention that he's, actually I was reading in Jude this morning and Jude doesn't even call himself the brother of Jesus. He says he's the brother of James. James actually calls himself a servant of God, a, a doulos Iesu Christu. Doulos, that word is probably better translated slave. He calls himself a slave of big brother. He calls big brother Lord. This is the Greek word kurios, which uh, in the LXX, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that Greek word's used to translate Yahweh. So, you know, let me ask you out there, those of you who have big brothers, did you ever call yourself a slave of your big brother? Did you ever introduce yourself that way? Sonia's shaking her head. I hope, I hope your brother's not watching this right now. Did you ever call him Lord? Of course not. You know, I know my little brother would never do that. He doesn't even call me big brother anymore because he's bigger than me. He's like an inch and a half taller than me. Not that I'm bitter about that. James doesn't refer to Jesus as big brother. And notice too, he doesn't leverage his little brother status to wield authority over the church. Instead, he calls himself a slave. I'm a slave to the Lord Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, the clue is found in that statement, Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. He knows now, James does. He believes now that big brother isn't just big brother. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one who came to take away the sins of the world. And James's faith in Jesus as the Christ has led to his salvation. And now he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which prompts this question for you this morning. Are you a doulos of Jesus Christ? Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus? Like James is, have you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior and Messiah as James has? By the way, there's something else I want to blow your mind with. Can I do that real quickly? There's a sense in which James, yes, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, but he's also Jesus's little brother, not biologically, but spiritually, everybody listening? Brace yourself for this. 
There's a sense in which every one of you in this room right now who is a servant of Christ Jesus, who believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's a sense in which you are the little brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Boy, you better have a verse for that, Pastor Tony. I do. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 10 on the screen. The author of Hebrews says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Those who have been saved, those who are being sanctified right now, we are brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Do you know the amazing thing about that passage right there? It's not just that we call Jesus our older brother. He calls us a brother. He calls us his brothers and sisters. You know what? I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm kind of sensitive to this as a big brother. Big brothers get a, bit, get a bad rap in the Bible. They do. Big, big brothers are the worst. Esau was the worst. And by the way, Jacob was a horrible little brother too, okay? They were just bad siblings. Jacob and Esau both. Joseph had the worst big brothers. They sold him into slavery. And think too about the prodigal son in Jesus' story. Think about the big brother. His, the prodigal son's big brother was a jerk. Can I just say it? He was a jerk. He didn't even care that his little brother had come back into the family. You know who the best big brother in the Bible is? This is the easiest question I'm going to give you today, so you better take a shot while you can. You know who the, who the best big brother in the Bible is? Y'all know who it is. Who, it is. who is it? It's Jesus. It's Hebrews 2. He is our big brother, and he is our Savior. He loved us so much as big brother. We're called the sons of God, right? We're called the children of God. And that's made possible by big brother, by what he did for us, going to the cross and dying for our sin. John Calvin said it this way. He said, there is no doubt at all that we are joined to God by means of Jesus, seeing he is our true brother. Because we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, Ephesians 5. For just as he is very God... So on the other hand, he is akin to us because he came down in order that we might be glorified by means of him. And for that reason also, he is called our brother. Can you believe that, that we get to call Jesus our brother? Do you feel the intimacy of that? The relationship in that? That is phenomenal. The band Citizens has a song called Kids, and they sing it this way. So there's nothing better than to know we belong. We've been adopted by the Father of love. Our brothers suffered on the cross in our place. We are kids of grace. Aren't we now? Are you a kid of grace? You never outgrow that status, by the way. You go on into eternity as a child of God. So we've talked now about the who. Let's transition to the when. This is a harder question. So James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, wrote this book. When did he write it? When did he write it? 
Well, the best evidence suggests that it was written around 45 to 48 A.D. That's an approximate date because, to be honest, it's, it's impossible to know with great specificity. You know, one of the ways, as you're reading through this book, just a few facts about the book of James. As you read through this book, you'll notice that you know, James was a lot like his big bro in different ways. One of the ways that he is like him is that he uses these great metaphors and these analogies throughout his writing. I'll just give you a sample of these. James speaks in his book of wind-tossed waves and withering plants and self-inspection using a mirror. James talks about a dead body and bridling a horse and turning a ship and forest fires and taming wild beasts. James James talks about the impossible fountain of fresh and bitter water mixed together. And this impossible vine of grape and figs both. He talks about ephemeral mist. He talks about clothes consumed by moths. He talks about rust behaving like fire. He talks about farmers waiting for rain. He talks about rain watering the earth. I mean, these are the kinds of images that Jesus used when he taught. And, you know, that was for, for, first, century, for first century Israelites, that's incredibly accessible to them. And, and I love it. I wish I could analogize like those guys did. They did such a good job with analogies. James is a master of it. Here's the question. When did he write this book? We don't know, but there's, there's a few ways that we can guess at the date. And I think it was probably before, maybe after he had a meeting with Paul in Acts 15, somewhere between, like I said, 80, 50. 45 and 48. You know, James died. I know it was at least before 62 AD because James died in AD 62, not long after Peter and Paul died at the hands of Emperor Nero. You know, James was a Jewish Christian leader pastoring the church in Jerusalem. So his heart was for those Jewish believers that were scattered, that were dispersed throughout the world. And as you read the book of Acts, you see there's several times in which persecution just kind of erupts in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and people have to scatter, people have to go to the the four corners of the world. And so James, at some point in his life, sat down as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, was thinking about this dispersion. Look at verse 1 again, the 12 tribes dispersed around the Roman Empire. He sat down, worried about them. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wrote this book to encourage them and to challenge them. Probably sometime in the mid-40s, before or after this climactic meeting with Paul. Now, just a few other fast facts here about the book of James. You know, James is the New Testament. Some people call it the New Testament book of wisdom. It most closely approximates Old Testament Hebrew wisdom, and there's a lot of corollaries between James and the book of Proverbs, if you read this book. You know, James is a letter, we're calling it a letter even, but it doesn't read like a letter. It doesn't, not like Paul's letters anyway. You know what James reads like? It reads like the book of Proverbs. It reads like these choice pieces of wisdom from an old sage. That's what it's like. You'll see that as we work through this book. You'll also see several connections in this book between James's writing and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew 5 through 7. Even if little brother didn't believe when Jesus was preaching, he was listening. (laughs) And he heard what Jesus said, and he circles back with it and teaches things that are very similar in this book. Also in the verse 1 of this book, James writes, Greetings. Do you see that at the end of verse 1? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. That word greetings in Greek is the word Cairo, usually translated rejoice. Rejoice! And it's very rarely used as a kind of greeting in the New Testament. But one of the places where it is used that way is in Acts 15.23 when a church leader in Jerusalem sits down to write a letter. Do you know who sat down to write that letter and wrote this word greetings? It was James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus. And like I said, I, I think it was probably after or before he had this argument in Acts 15 with Paul. By the way, if you go back and read Acts 15, Paul won that argument. He did. And I think maybe it was during that time that James, maybe for the first time with clarity, saw God's divine plan for salvation for Jews and Gentiles both. He was teachable as a leader in the church, able to receive from Paul. So that's the when. Let's talk about the why. Why did James write this letter? Why did James write this letter to the Jewish dispersion spread throughout the Roman Empire? Why didn't he just leave the letter writing to Peter and Paul and John? Why not let them write all the books of the Bible? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire James to write this book? Why did he see a need to write this letter. And then why is this letter important for us to read and to study for the next eight weeks? I think all of the answers to those questions are related. I want to answer the question why in one short sentence, okay? So you can see this in your notes. I'm trying to to distill this entire book into one sentence And if you've ever done that before, that is really, really hard to do. It's easy to be verbose. It's hard to be concise. But I'm going to try. Here's the theme of the book. Here's why this book was written. Here's why you should read and study it. James wrote this book to motivate sincere believers to live out their faith with visible God-glorifying actions. Everybody got that? Let me say it again. Why was this book written? James wrote this book to motivate sincere believers to live out their faith with visible God-glorifying actions. James wrote this book So we can put our faith into practice. This is where that punch to the gut I mentioned earlier comes in. James is like, well, you say you're a believer? Start acting like it. That's how I feel. James says, you you say you're a believer? Good. Stop lashing out at people with your tongue. 
James says, you you say you're a believer. You say that you're a follower of Christ. Okay, stop being presumptuous about your life. Stop talking and start praying. Another shot to the gut. James says, stop showing favoritism. There's a lot of commands in this book. James says, stop being ungenerous and materialistic with your money. James says, stop being a hearer of God's word. Do it. Be a doer. James says, stop whining about the trials that you're going through. Stop saying you believe if your belief doesn't get activated in real discernible actions. You know, reading the book of James, you feel like a villain in Adam West's Batman. You know, wham, pow, zap. You're just getting worked over. And, and really, reading the book of James, it's like getting into the ring with an MMA fighter. That's what it's like. It's like getting in there, and he just beats the snot out of you. Actually, that's not the right analogy. It's like getting into the ring with an MMA fighter who simultaneously pummels you while at the same time teaches you to be a great MMA fighter yourself. Let me change the metaphor for you. Reading the book of James is boot camp. Welcome to boot camp. Put your big boy pants on and let's study the book of James. Y'all with me? And be prepared. Be Be prepared to be convicted, maybe in ways that you didn't expect, and to change. I hope you're up for that. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, this is a very famous quote of his. He called James, this book, he called it an epistle of straw. And... He, he thought of it as kind of a second-tier letter of theology compared to Paul's epistles and to other books of the, Old, of the New Testament. So he called it an epistle of straw. And you guys know I love Martin Luther, right? Y'all know that. I quoted him all the time we, when we worked through the book of Romans. I love Martin Luther, but he's not right with that statement. This is not an epistle of straw. This is an epistle of granite. It is rock-solid. And when you read it, if you commit to reading it, studying it, it packs a wallop. It's going to change you. I hope you're ready for it. When I was about 13 years old, I started going to youth group at my church. My sister was there, my older sister and all of her friends. And let me just say this about myself at age 13. I feel like I have enough insight into myself to know this. But when I was 13, I was a cocky, obnoxious Christian kid, okay? And I was was a bit of a pain to my youth pastor. So God bless the youth pastors out there and the work that they do. Thank you, Ryan Jackson. But I I was a kind of a self-righteous Christian kid, and my youth pastor had to shepherd me through that stage of life. And here's the reason I was cocky. I, you know, I had grown up in the church. 
I had been through Awanas. I had memorized large sections of scripture through Awanas and through my school, my private school that I went to and other things like that. And so I would, you know, I, I thought I knew the Bible pretty well. I was like a little Christian Pharisee. And so my youth pastor, you know, he's insightful. He challenged me when I started going to youth group. And, you know, he, he challenged me to start reading my Bible for myself, like in a personal devotional time, not like memorizing in Nuanas where they give you awards and not like going to the church on Sunday and hearing the pastor preach a sermon, like actually open the Bible up on your own and read it for yourself. What a thought, you know, never occurred to me. Oh, that's a great idea. And you know what the first book of the Bible he encouraged me to read was? It was the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. So I started reading this book, and I had this, this awakening. As I was reading the book, I was like, I don't, I don't even know this. I don't know anything about the Bible. And it, it was solid gold as far as I was concerned. Like, this is so good. How did I not know this was here? We didn't memorize this in Awanas. And I read that entire book, and I got to the end of it. And, you know, I had this... I had enough wisdom to know at that time. I had this epiphany, like I could spend the rest of my life studying this and trying to apply it and never get to the bottom of it. My youth pastor was smart, see? He knew what he was doing. So I went back to him, and I said, I I read Proverbs, and it it was amazing. And I I want more. What else you got? And so he told me, it's time to read the book of James and the New Testament. Sure. So I read James, and I got into the ring with that MMA fighter named James, the kid brother of Jesus, and he beat me to a pulp. And I liked it. I liked what he was teaching. And I wanted to be like that. And I wanted to live my life like what he described in that book. And I wanted to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Here's where I'm going with this. I want to do something similar for you this morning that my youth pastor did for me 30 years ago. I want to challenge you with all of my persuasive pastoral powers. Let's study the book of James together. Can we do that? You know what? I'm going to be there with you, right there with you. Next week, Paul Roberts is going to be up here, and he's going to be preaching about wisdom that comes from above. And I'm going to be listening and wanting to hear and learn from him. I'm going to be watching on that camera right there. Now, I'm going to be on the beach in Florida, okay? No hard feelings. But I, I, I want to learn from our elders about James. And I want to live this out. I want to be a doer of God's word. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be sincere in my faith with God-glorifying actions. So let's do this together. Harvest Decatur, are you ready? I liked how we said amen earlier. So I'm going to give you a few questions. And if you agree, if you are willing even to commit to that, I want you to say amen. Okay? 
Y'all ready? Get yourself ready now. Come on now. We're about to sing. If you're willing to let the word of God transform you, say amen. If you're willing to live your faith in Jesus out through God-glorifying actions, say amen. Amen. If you're willing to study and listen to the book of James, say amen. 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 Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for the next eight weeks. I pray for our elders who are going to be teaching from your word. I pray for every person in this room that they'll come ready, hungry, willing to learn from you. God, I want to thank you, if I can, for my youth pastor and those challenges he gave me at age 13. It changed my life. And God, I've seen you do mighty, mighty work in my life and the lives of other people that are gathered here today through our commitment to your word. God, we've been at this for 12 years, Harvest Decatur. We committed to being a Bible church 12 years ago. Lord, we, we haven't yet reached the end of that. We haven't run out of steam. God, quite frankly, we haven't run out of things that we're not doing well enough. We keep coming back to your word for help, for answers, for truth. So God, as we begin this journey through the book of James, would you by the spirit inside of us empower us to listen, learn, and apply your word into our lives.